From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. At last count, Georgia had just under 1,400 kids in foster care, an increase over the past decade. The U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development just announced $1.5 million in funding for young people who age out of foster care. But the number of caseworkers and foster parents who help foster kids has not kept pace with the numbers still in the system. Last year, Samantha Max reported on the shortage for the Macon Telegraph. I spoke with her and foster parent John DeGarmo about the challenges for the system and asked Samantha why foster care in Georgia is under such a strain. 2010 is when the uptick began again, and there are a slew of different, you know, factors that can be at play there, whether it's poverty, whether it's instability, but also things like the opioid crisis or um, a new hotline was put in place to report different situations where kids maybe should be put in the foster system. So it's kind of this perfect storm of all of these different things coming together. We're going to look at some of those reasons in more detail. But John, first, is Georgia worse off than other states? Is is this really a crisis? Oh, absolutely. It's a crisis. Yes, I've had the, uh, the privilege of traveling across the country, working with foster care agencies. And Georgia's got a particular problem that is just not going away. John, Samantha mentioned that one obstacle is not just about funding, but the insufficient number of foster parents out there who can take kids in. Why don't more people want to foster children? That's a great question. So many people have misconceptions, and I had those misconceptions myself before I was a foster parent. Misconceptions that people have to have a big house or a large income or the children are bad, and all those are false. You don't have to have a big house. You don't have to be married. You don't have to have a large income. And the children are simply victims of abuse or neglect or abandonment. These children are victims, and they're just looking for somebody to give them a chance and help them. But the other factor is this. Foster parents feel that they do not get the support they need during times of grief and loss or burnout and stress. And what I mean by grief and loss is this. When a child comes into a, to my home as a foster parent, there's not a label. There's no label of biological or adoptive or foster. They're all my children, and I love them with all my heart unconditionally so that when they leave the home, for whatever reason it may be, when they return back to their biological parents or they age out or whatever it may be, it's like losing my own child. And so many foster parents suffer from what is known as compassion fatigue or secondary traumatic stress, and they have those feelings of grief and loss. And that's very hard for a foster parent recover from if they're not getting the support that they need. What I heard from you, John, is that on the ground, the system doesn't really have the capacity to address those different needs well, of different don't. families. The larger number of children coming in to the foster care system, mainly due to the opiate crisis, there's the, today's caseworkers are simply overworked, overwhelmed, and under-resourced. They don't have the resources themselves, the caseworkers, and as a result, they can't give the foster parents the need that they need. And also, foster parenting, is, it's a challenging job. You know, for me, it's the most rewarding thing I've done, but at the same time, it's the most challenging thing I've done. When children come into a home who are suffering from anxieties and suffering from traumas and abuse and suffering from attachment issues or issues of trust, you know, that's a challenge on a family. So it's a very stressful job. Well, I want to ask you about how you and your wife made the decision to take the plunge to take kids in. Well, our first child died of a condition called anencephaly, or some pronounce it anencephaly. It's a condition where the brain or skull never truly forms. And afterwards, after we had three children after that, I recognized when I moved to Georgia and teaching in a rural high school setting 
that there were so many children in this rural setting who were having issues of behavior or academics or attendance in schools. And I, and I kept wondering, what is this? What is the correlation? And then I met some of the birth parents. And then I truly realized, yes, it starts in the home. I had lost my first child. How can I help these other children who are suffering in some way? And that led the decision of foster parenting. Well, I'm so sorry about your loss, but uh, also really heartened by what you've taken on. In fact, you and your wife recently founded Never Too Late. This is a group home for adolescent boys in Monticello. You, you opened it in part because of the foster care shortage or the shortage of homes in middle Georgia. Right? Yeah, that's correct. My wife and I have had as many as 11 children placed in our house at the same time. And the state number is six. But there's such a need in our area that we've signed waiver after waiver, if you will. And we recognize that, you know what, we, wanted, we, we cannot continue taking 9, 10, 11 kids in our own home. But how can we help more children? How can we take it up to another level? You know, the statistics are very grim for children when they age out of foster care. 55% of these children will drop out of school. 65% will end up homeless. 75% will spend time incarcerated. And like so many others, they'll, the cycle will repeat itself for the next generation. So we thought, how can we help more? How can we stop this vicious cycle? So we have opened up a residential home for boys in our area. Much of it's having to do with the, I guess, the cascading effects of the opioid crisis. Samantha, what kind of stories or kids did you meet that were caught up in that addictive cycle? I did not come across specifically any kids who had made it into the foster system because of the opioid crisis, mostly because of privacy issues. But if you look at the reports and all of the national data, you can see that obviously the opioid epidemic has reached every corner of this country. And, you know, you think about people who are using opioids, it really spans the gamut of every age group, every population, and a lot of times they have kids. So you think about if someone is addicted to drugs, how can they really care for a child? And a lot of times they do need that support from the state. My guests are Samantha Max, former reporter for the Macon Telegraph. She's now with Nashville Public Radio. And John DeGarmo, a foster parent who runs a group home in Monticello. John, as a foster parent, have you taken in any kids who were caught up in this swirl of addiction? Uh, absolutely. Almost every day, to be sure. When we're seeing more parents addicted to drugs and, we're see- and the opiates, and we're seeing more parents incarcerated because of opiates or hospitalized or even dying because of the opiate crisis, where are these children going? They're flooding into a foster care system in our state that cannot handle it. And I've had child time after time after time placed in my home whose parents have been addicted to opiates in some way. Oh, my goodness. I, in fact, I've adopted three children from the foster care system. Two of them are third-generation foster care, mm. which means their parents and their grandparents were also in foster care and due mainly to the opiate crisis. And does that happen frequently, multi-generational foster care? Yes. Sadly, it does. Sadly, it is something. When these children do age out and they don't get the support they need, they don't have the stability, they don't have those living skills or social skills or even high school diploma to fall back upon, yes, for so many of these children, it starts again for their next generation. And aging out is what, 18? What is the age here in Georgia? That is correct. Now, 18. Now, there there is a a program where the children can sign themselves back in, if you will, if they go to college or they have some type of independent living program. But sadly, so many of these youth do not take that, uh, that program. And they do it simply because in their mind, in their eyes, 
they don't want to be labeled a foster child. No one wants that label. And in their mind, the foster care system has failed them in some way. So there is a stigma not only from uh, outside of the system, you talked about some of the misconceptions, but even within it that people don't want to be identified as a foster kid. Oh, absolutely. Who wants that label? When a child is placed into my home as a foster parent, you know, I used to think, I used to think they wanted to be in my home, that I was helping them, hmm. but that's the opposite effect. You know, I can, I can give them all that stability and that security and that unconditional love, if you will, but at the end of the day, they want to go back to their norm, even if their norm was an abusive environment. And they want to go back to their mommy and their daddy, even if it was a horrific situation, because that's their norm, that's their family in their sense, and society has placed a, a, a negative stereotype on foster children, if you will, that, that, that label. And again, no child wants that label placed upon them. Well, Samantha, you report that the Division of Family and Child Services, again, defects, their primary goal is to keep families together. Now, officials have told you that they are ramping up on those efforts because of the influx of kids into the system. So what is DFACS now doing to, in terms of early intervention? I think the goal is always family reunification. You know, when you're a kid, you want to stay with your biological parents. And when you're a parent, you don't want to be separated from your child, even if circumstances sometimes get in the way. So I think what DFACS has really chosen to do, and this is not new, but really just ramping up the efforts, is putting in the support before a child needs to be removed. They can connect them with therapeutic counseling, whether that be in their home or taking them to outpatient counseling, and really just having caseworkers work with them to see what are the patterns, what are the issues, how can all members of the family work together to make it a more stable environment for the children or the child. And another thing is sometimes people just need to be connected to resources that either they didn't know were available or didn't know how to find, whether that's SNAP benefits or the Women and Infant and Children program. There are so many resources that perhaps people aren't aware of, and it's really just a matter of having that guiding hand help them find the support they need. So, Samantha, you do report that children who spend time in foster care suffer mental health issues at higher rates, something that John echoed earlier. So what are some of the consequences and ways of building trust with kids who have that kind of emotional baggage that they're carrying? That's a really good question, and I've spoken with multiple therapists who specialize in this what they see often is that just so many children who have spent time in foster custody are suffering from trauma. I mean, if you think about it, whether it's the experience that they're coming from in their biological home, the actual act of being separated from their biological family, and then, you know, what happens next if they go to one home, multiple homes after that. It's really just a very tumultuous situation to find yourself in, especially as a child. So those effects will linger with them if they don't get the support that they need. And even if they do get the support that they need, you know, that's never something that you can erase. One therapist who I spoke with who specializes in children who have spent time in foster custody and who actually has adopted four of her own foster children, she basically told me that as a counselor, what she really has to do is help children 
take back control of their story. You know, so many things have been outside of their control in the past and they pick up these behaviors, whether it's maybe hoarding food, being aggressive, things that oftentimes adults or bystanders may not understand what the roots of those behaviors are. But if you look at the trauma that they've experienced, you can kind of break it down with them and help them understand, you know, this is a chapter of your story, but you can write the next chapter and you can take control with your own voice. John, this is something that you've seen, I'm sure, over and over again, this trope about children in foster care badly behaved. Is it the trauma that we've been discussing and how do you as parents cope with that? Well, you know, you hear something that's very important there, and, and Samantha did as well. When a child goes from one home to the next home, which is known as multiple displacement, and sadly happens to so many children in foster care. In fact, I've worked with some children across the country who have been in 30, 40, 50 different homes. You can imagine what that does to an attachment issues with the child or issues of trust. And then when they go from one home to the next, many doctors will prescribe them more and more medication. So it's often the case where children in foster care are over-medicated with psychotropic drugs. All of this plays a part of uh, the issues, the anxiety that these children face. It is challenging. On top of that, no child wants to be placed in my home as a foster child. So it takes time. Foster parents must be very understanding, very committed, very patient, compassionate, and to provide what the child needs more than anything else, and that is to love that child despite all of these challenges they bring in the home. And I want to let people know this. As a foster parent, you might not change the world, but for these children, their world will be changed because of what you do. John DeGarmo is a foster parent who runs a home for children in Monticello, Georgia. Samantha Max was a reporter for the Macon Telegraph, and I spoke to her when her series on foster care in Georgia was published there. She is now a reporter for Nashville Public Radio. Coming up, the many-layered history of Atlanta's Summerhill neighborhood. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. If you've ever taken the 7585 connector through Atlanta, you have driven through the neighborhood of Summerhill. After the Civil War, Summerhill was one of Atlanta's first black neighborhoods, seated just south of downtown. Well, over the decades, the community has survived being sliced up by expressways, construction of two major stadiums, and the opening and closing of local businesses. And it is not over. When the Braves moved to the suburbs and Georgia State University moving into Turner Field, the Summerhill neighborhood seems to be headed for one more revival. With this new wave of development, historians from Georgia State University wanted to document the stories of the neighborhood in digital form. They created Streetscape Palimpsest, a history of Georgia Avenue. Dr. Marnie Davis is one of those historians, and she joined us to talk about the project. Now, the Summerhill neighborhood that we know today really started as two distinct neighborhoods. I asked Dr. Davis what these neighborhoods looked like then, right after the Civil War. Well, after the Civil War, the initial settlement of African-Americans who moved down south of downtown to it was one of several neighborhoods in the city that freed slaves and uh, free blacks sought to create their own institutions and their own residential enclaves. Um, And that happened to the part of Summerhill that we know now to the east of what is now Hank Aaron was then known as Capitol Avenue. Mm -hmm. To the west of Capitol Avenue was... two major thoroughfares that were being built from downtown to the south of the city, um, Washington Street and Capitol Avenue, were both 
streets where there were a lot of businesses. Uh, Washington Street and even Prior Street had a lot of fancy homes and mansions. The governor's mansion was even there for a little while, but briefly. And then these neighborhoods became residential enclaves, first for uh, white Atlantans, and then they became uh, sites of settlement for immigrants, first for German Jews, Central European Jews, and then for Eastern European Jews from Russia and Poland, um, and also Greeks and uh, some Syrians as well. So, so it sounds like a very diverse neighborhood, certainly. Yes, yeah, certainly. They were, I mean, to say diverse sounds... Okay, diverse know, but segregated, is that the way to put absolutely. it? Absolutely. I mean, this is, you know, uh, the lead up to Jim Crow and then deep in the, you know, Jim Crow Atlanta. And so these neighborhoods were sort of a, it was a black neighborhood and a white neighborhood living really cheek by jowl right next to each other. And there was some porousness across Capitol Avenue where there were some white people who were living in Summerhill, what was then known as Summerhill, and African-American, even a homeowner enclaves in what was in the website I call the South Side. But you can actually read about it in newspapers at the time. It's sometimes called, uh, you know, the Washington Street neighborhood or Capitol Avenue. When I talked to people who grew up in that neighborhood back in the 1940s and 50s, sometimes they just called it the Jewish neighborhood, um, Jewish Atlanta. And they and sometimes there were African-Americans living in that part of town, too. But this was not, you know, sort of like a multicultural neighborhood as we would know it today. The idea of diversity as we, um, you know, honor it and are excited about it just simply didn't exist in Atlanta Well, at the in time. fact, you say that sort of by design. At one point, you say in your work that the streetcars reveal how inequality was built into the streets themselves. How did that reveal itself? Well, if you look at a streetcar map from the 1920s, uh, you'll see that uh, in the streets south of downtown, there are streetcar lines that are going down Prior Street, Washington Street, uh, Capitol Avenue, and then it skips over that neighborhood that had already been established for African Americans, and it goes uh, to Hill Street. Uh, and so you can see how, I mean, some, you know, it's hard to tell if you're looking at old uh, streetcar maps, because some you don't know if the the settlement of people sort of developed around the streetcars that had been Right, because they want, they because want, they want access to, to transportation, to the infrastructure, or if the streetcars are being built around neighborhoods. But for this one, you really can see that they've just kind of left a gaping hole in an, around uh, an island of black settlement, which was Summerhill at the time. I'm going to get to this idea of porousness, because there was one establishment that served both black and white audiences, certainly not integrated, but the Empire Movie Theater. What role did that play in the community? Well, the Empire Movie Theater, it's really amazing to think of. If you are standing in front of what is now GSU Stadium, and you look at, uh, you find Gate 8, that's where it was standing at that exact location. And it was it was built in the early 1920s, uh, was a, uh, you know, just, I think it was kind of a, a bit of a second run movie theater. And there were these tiny movie theaters all over the city that were built by, you know, private people, they weren't necessarily attached to big movie houses. And it was a place where People from the South Side and Summerhill and all the surrounding neighborhoods could go and see movies for, you know, five cents, ten cents. But there were, I mean, there were many movie theaters in the city where it was for whites only uh, or were known as for blacks only. But this was a movie theater where African-Americans and whites could attend buy tickets, but it was also segregated, much like the Fox Theater. So the African-Americans had to take a separate entrance on the side. They were only allowed to sit at the top of the, you know, in the in the balcony uh, and the the 
orchestra was limited for uh, white ticket buyers only. Okay, so some mixing, but still segregated. Still very segregated. So by the 40s and 50s, Georgia Avenue had become a center of business, and you interviewed Walter Banks, one of the residents who lived there at the time. Let's hear just a clip from him. Where'd your parents go grocery shopping in the neighborhood? On Georgia Avenue. Georgia Avenue was like a little small downtown. Everything you needed almost was on Georgia Avenue. Uh, Austin Supermarket, that was a big one. It, it ran from the Empire all the way up to Capitol Avenue. And I remember they used to, you, on your receipt, you sign your name and put it in a, in a big box. And they used to draw for a car. And that was the closest I remember integration when they used to pull for that car. So everybody, they blocked the street, everybody was standing in the street. So that was about the closest I can remember if it was so-called integration. That Summerhill resident Walter Banks on the grocery store lottery at Austin's Mm -hmm. on Georgia Avenue in the 1950s. So what are you hearing in these stories that you collected? Not just his, but all of them. I hear a little center of downtown. There were some rules, but there were some places where those rules were cast aside. I, well, it seems like uh, Georgia Avenue, which is where I really focused a lot of my research, uh, was um, a, really a, a center for so many neighborhoods nearby, not just Summer Hill and the Southside neighborhood, but also, you know, people that you speak to who grew up in People's Town, uh, Grant Park, that both black and white, that they all knew about and shopped at the stores around Georgia Avenue. And these were spaces where people, you know, interacted across racial boundaries, but where it seems like but it's really clear that those racial boundaries were still very strictly enforced. Uh, and one of the uh, stories that I read was uh, a civil rights activist named uh, Ruby Doris Robinson, who had grown up in Summerhill. And she said that she uh, went to a an ice cream store where she had seen white customers whose uh, the person who was uh, scooping the ice cream was handling the cone with a sanitary piece of paper. And then when she got up to the counter, uh, the, the person and scooping ice cream seemed to be a little bit miffed about having to serve an African-American and just grabbed a cone. And Ruby Dora said, no, you will treat my money with the same respect that you treat the money of white customers. Um, and you'll, you'll treat my cone with a piece of paper as well. And it seems like such a small thing. But those small, uh, it's, it makes clear how devastating and crushing those small insults can be if you're experiencing them over and over again in every store that you go into, uh, on the streets, uh, when you have to walk farther from your home in order to take the streetcar, or if and another thing about Summerhill in terms of infrastructure is that the roads of Summerhill remained, many of the, of the streets the residential streets remained unpaved well into the 20th century. Mm-hmm. So, yes, it's a space of where people who are both black and white are interacting with one another. And that was true of so much of Atlanta anyway. But it also, the, the personal stories make clear how those interactions impacted their way of thinking about politics and their life in the city.
Marnie Davis is with me. She's an historian and professor from Georgia State University, and her project, Streetscape Palimpsest, A History of Georgia Avenue, is a digital documentation of the tumultuous history of the Summerhill neighborhood. You're talking about, you know, those microaggressions, what we would now call microaggressions, those little actions that communicate difference. But there were some big, major projects going on at the time for the neighborhood in the late 1950s, the expressways. How was Summerhill impacted by what would be become the intersection of the connector and I-20. Really, it can't be understated. And it's worth pointing out that there had been a previous major project that had impacted the neighborhood, too, which was the building of Capital Homes, which was a public housing project that was um, constructed, I think it opened in 1940. And this is at the very north end, what would have then been considered the north end of Summerhill, and is now sort of cut off from Summerhill, because, a large part because of 20, because of uh, Interstate 20. Uh, but uh, that neighborhood had been a majority African-American neighborhood, and it all got cleared to create white-only public housing. And so this was sort of the first incident of uh, displa- residential displacement for the purposes of, uh, I guess, you know, social engineering and, and recreation of the city's infrastructure. But then in uh, the 1950s, well, it's start, even starting in the 1940s, the city is beginning to think about how they are going to build highway infrastructure in order to connect the downtown with the suburbs of the city, which are growing by leaps and bounds at the time, and also with other cities in the area. And so they are building a highway and they decide that it's going to go through um, not Summerhill at this point, but it's going to go through the South Side neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And that's really where that's what gets cleared is uh, everything from I guess you can I think it's probably like Central Avenue uh, through Washington Street. All of that is gone now. That's all a highway. And at the, around the same time, they decided that they were going to connect uh, the east. They were going to make this section, this place, um, the east-west, where the east-west connect, east-west highway connects with the, the, the north-south highway. Mm-hmm. And so they build the interchange, which is at that time, the largest highway interchange in the southeast. And it goes right in the north end of what had been the south side neighborhood. And if you look, it's amazing, if you look at old maps of Atlanta, and you look at that particular place, you'll see three synagogues, uh, a, a high school, a convent, <laughs> uh, so many institutions, and really, in a lot of ways, what was the heart of the institutional part of Jewish Atlanta, mm-hmm. uh, and it they it just got torn down. Uh, those institutions were able to move to the north side of the city and buy new real estate and or recreate their communities in the northern uh, suburbs. Uh, but it's all gone. So it's really hard to think about how what the city looked like if you go to other cities and uh, you can go to something that looks kind of like the old neighborhood. And you can get a sense of even if the people have changed, the demography has changed, that the the buildings are the same. And here there's nothing like that. And so it's really hard to sort of employ historical imagination. Imagine what did people, how did people live in this neighborhood? Because it's not a neighborhood anymore. It's and in that flattened. area, it's nothing. Yeah. It's nothing. And so how this affected Summerhill was that it cut off those streets from the neighborhoods to the west, 
So there, I mean, you can't it, go it changed, from, you, the walking traffic. You can't. Yeah, it was a grid. It yeah. was an urban grid, and it was gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in addition, when all of the homes and the residences and the, the residents who had been living in that neighborhood when they left, these were the customers that Georgia Avenue served. I mean, Georgia Avenue, though it was a pretty robust and bustling shopping district, it really relied on local patronage. And when the local patrons are gone the shops start to close and those who can end up moving to, you know, other suburbs uh, and those who can't just shut down. And so Georgia Avenue, as Georgia Avenue begins to wither, the, that neighborhood is no longer served by, you know, eight grocery stores that had right. been there. It goes down to four. And then by 1970, it's like one. Yeah, isolated by economically and by traffic. By yes. Well, so and and then it's hard to talk about Summerhill without discussing the influence of Stadia. Um, <laughs> but the first stadium was there wasn't Turner Field; it was Cheney Stadium. So, so first, how did Summerhill get selected for this kind of development? Well, Cheney Stadium was built uh, as a. a a sports facility to serve the high schools, the white high schools of uh, in the south side of the city. And one of those was Hoke Smith High School, which is which no longer exists. And it's on around the same plot of land as uh, uh, MLK Junior High School is now on Hill Street. Um, but uh, Hoke Smith High School was one of several that uh, several high schools that uh, served uh, white students um to the south of Ponce. And so that area was, it had already been, some part of it was a park, part of it was actually residential, uh, but it was decided that this would be a good place for uh, the the, um, the the city to build or the, the Atlanta uh, public school system uh, to build a stadium. And the African-Americans who lived in that neighborhood, the leadership actually went to uh, the Atlanta public schools and said, this is this might be a problem, not only because we've been told that there would be a stadium built for us here. This was supposed to be for our stu- our kids, our students, but also the idea. This is you know in nineteen in the nineteen fifties of a bunch of uh, white students sort of uh, trekking in and out of Summerhill on a regular basis for sports events. There was some concern that this might lead to unrest, violence. Um, I never saw any evidence. I mean, I you know looked in the newspapers. I never saw any evidence of any anything that happened there. But that was really the first of the stadium that had been imposed, stadia that had been imposed on uh, Summerhill, sort of without their consent or pre knowledge. Marnie Davis, stay with us. We're going to take a short break. She's a historian and professor from GSU, and we're learning about the history of Georgia Avenue. This is something that she and her colleagues have been documenting. This is the Summerhill neighborhood in Atlanta, but indicative of so many neighborhoods, I think, across the South that had once er, once thriving urban centers and now no longer. It's an American story. It is an American story. Let's hang on. We'll be right back with more of On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. We're 
We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott, picking up a conversation with Dr. Marnie Davis about the history of Summerhill. That's the Atlanta neighborhood that has survived booms and busts, blights and riots, and a story that's been going on across American cities, especially lower-income areas, since ideas of urban renewal took hold in the late 20th century. Well, we're looking at what the current upswing means in our ever-evolving conversations about gentrification. When we spoke, I asked her about stadia, which is the plural of stadium, by the way. Cheney Stadium would not be the last to be built. I asked Dr. Davis what happened next to this neighborhood. Well, uh, after uh, the highways are uh, beginning to be conceived and then under construction and the land is being cleared, uh, the city then undertakes a project of urban renewal. Uh, and the goal for urban renewal, um, one of them is uh, slum clearance is the term that they use to uh, find uh, areas of the city that are sites of concentrated poverty and dilapidated infrastructure, tear it down and replace it with new infrastructure and new buildings. Um, and the other is to protect uh, downtown area uh, from blight. Mm -hmm. Now, the goal originally had been for uh, the city to build, again, white public housing, whites-only public housing in that area. But African-American leaders went to the city and said, this is preposterous and unfair, because um, it is primarily African-Americans at this point who are being cleared from this land, being displaced, and uh, there is not sufficient housing being rebuilt for them. So if you're going to build public housing, it should be public housing for African-Americans. But uh, the um, city aldermen are unwilling to build black-only public housing so close to downtown. So what are we going to do with the land? And that's when Ivan Allen Jr., uh, recently mayor, comes in and says, well, we've been looking for a baseball team and a place to promise a, a major league baseball team. Here's our spot. And so the Atlanta Fulton County Stadium gets built there in 1965, and the Braves play their first season there in 1966. Well, with the stadium comes demands for parking, as we know, which was in short supply here. Here's a clip from one of your interviews. This is Summerhill resident Joseph Stalls on how he and his neighbors used it to their advantage. We actually started one of the first gypsy parking lot in Summerhill. Uh, on certain games, like when uh, the Dodgers came to town, when... Uh, then the master pitched against Sandy Colfax. Oh, it's a sellout, and, and, and cars are everywhere. And uh, the fans would uh, pay you. At the time, we used to charge maybe $2 or $3, you know, to come and, and uh, the cars are parking your driveway. My dad sawed our porch in half so the cars could come behind our house. And we can get uh, 10 to 15 cars behind our house. So at, at, at um, 10, 11, 12 years old, you know, we we make fifteen, twenty dollars and twenty five dollars. That was big money back in the in the sixties and seventies. Okay, uh, Summerhill resident Joseph Stalls on um, what they call gypsy parking lots. Right, I'm going to use his term. Yes, yes, <laughs> um, and. It's that was really interesting to me to be reminded of the sort of multiple perspectives on something like I mean it's when you're coming from the pers from the position of uh, you know the old infrastructure should be rebuilt and that the stadium uh, was nothing but a, a scourge upon the neighborhood it's easy to forget that at the ground level there are people who are like hey this is actually an opportunity for us uh, and so I think that it's a helpful reminder that. 
our interpretations require, our historical interpretations always require hearing from as many different voices as possible because it adds nuance and it reminds us that um, life is complicated. Yeah. And there's, you know, entrepreneurialism there. There's Absolutely. opportunity for people who are living there and, and, and doing, making do with what they've got and even using it to their advantage. But it's not all a happy story. The, the neighborhood was also associated in the 1970s when the business area was taking a sharp downturn. What was happening at this turning point in the neighborhood at the time? Well, by 1970, the white population, and even I, I think it's fair to say the middle class population in a lot of ways, because there, you know, uh, there was a significant black middle class living in Summerhill up through the 1940s and 50s. Um, but as the neighborhood goes into decline because of the highways and because of the stadium and lots of other reasons, the middle class uh, leaves the neighborhood because they are able to access they better housing move. elsewhere. Yeah. Um, so the Summerhill neighborhood becomes a site of uh, concentrated poverty in a way that it really hadn't been previously. Um, it becomes uh, a, a not just con- but concentrated racialized poverty. It is uh, poor black residents who are in the neighborhood and they find themselves uh, in conflict a lot of times with the people who are now the entrepreneurs uh, along Georgia Avenue. And in uh, on, on my website, I tell a story of one site of conflict, which was uh, Azar's package store. Uh, Azar, the, his name is Donald Azar, and he had owned liquor stores and owned real estate around the neighborhood, really all around the city. But he started a liquor store on the corner of Georgia Avenue and Fraser Street uh, in the mid-60s or so. And it seemed like the relationship between Azar and the neighborhood had been pretty contentious from early on. Uh, but that really bubbled up into something uh, that turned violent. In 1970, uh, Azar was accused of assaulting um, uh, an African-American employee who worked in his store. And so there was a series of protests uh, against him and uh, against uh, the presence of liquor stores. I mean, at, by this point, there are, I think, as many uh, liquor stores on Georgia Avenue as there were places where you could buy fresh groceries. Hmm. And uh People who lived in the neighborhood recognized that they were being ill-served by the commerce and they wanted it to change. And so there was an effort made to um, convince Azar to leave the neighborhood. He doesn't. Uh, And then in August of that year, a boy from the neighborhood, a 15-year-old boy uh, named Andre Moore, is shot and killed by police. And that... Uh, was, you know, not the first incident of of uh, police brutality in the neighborhood. As a matter of fact, uh, the um, riot, sometimes referred to as a riot, sometimes referred to as a rebellion in Summerhill in 1966, had uh, that had also been in response to the neighborhood sense that the police were uh, ill-serving uh, the black community in, in the neighborhood. Uh, and so the in, after the shooting of Andre Moore, the neighborhood is just enraged and frustrated Neighborhood leaders go to the mayor and basically plead with him to shut down the liquor store, to take into account the resources that the neighborhood needs and have been made unavailable to them. And the city government saying, OK, we'll change it. But nothing really does. Yeah. 
And at that time, you know, there were riots, there were bullets in puncturing Azar's walls, firebombs thrown in through the plate glass windows there. Another, uh, several other businesses there were torched as well. As you said, you know, 80s, 90s, Olympic fever, everything changes there, or that was the promise. That was the promise. Right. And now then the Braves, of course, headed to the suburbs. Georgia State moved into the area. And now we're seeing, it's near my neighborhood. I live in Grant Park, and I go through there. Now there's a little cafe. There's a great soft serve place. There are all these, the buildings have been sort of spiffed up. So that, of course, is, you know, gentrification, a part of a part of a national conversation and certainly a local conversation in places like Atlanta about affordable housing and displacing residents. What are we seeing now in Summerhill and what kind of, I guess, lessons of the past can we draw? Well, it's interesting to think about both uh, the ways in which, uh oh, here's history potentially repeating itself. Doing this project has made me think about what Georgia Avenue was like in the past and the fact that it had all these different kinds of grocery stores and butchers and bakers. And uh, they could really serve all of these stores could really serve a neighborhood that was um, culturally and economically diverse. And a neighborhood really needs that in order to thrive. And so I am certainly delighted that there is something there and something lovely where there had been nothing. But um, how is the commerce that is developing along Georgia Avenue and really around Summerhill and lots of other places now, um, how is that going to serve the neighborhood more broadly? Is right. it going to... So it may not be liquor stores or package stores, but now it's, you know, a bakery with, right. with $5 pastries. Exactly. And so how will these stores help say, a, a longtime neighborhood resident who is aging in place on a fixed income. Is this the kind of commerce that's going to be able to help that person live on a day-to-day basis? They could actually, you know, walk to get groceries or a very short drive to get groceries. I hope that what happens in Summerhill makes it possible for both the old and the new to coexist. One final question here. You use the term palimpsest, which is a beautiful word, very poetic, but a lot of people might not know what it means. Why choose it for the project? It, it's a bit of an SAT word. It's true. <laughs> um, it's just a, it's a, a, well, what a palimpsest is, is a document, usually not necessarily a piece of paper, but back thousands of years ago when people would write on things like parchment or lambskin, the stuff to write on was actually kind of rare. So when you would reuse whatever it is that you're using to write on by erasing or scraping off what had been there previously and writing over it. And now uh, historians who have access to these documents, to these primary sources, they are able to you know, read the writing that's on the top level, but also see what's underneath by what's been carved out previously. And sometimes it's you know, multiple layers of document and use and user. And it is a beautiful metaphor for cities, uh, because especially in older neighborhoods and Georgia Avenue in this area is a perfect example of the, you know, you can see the old buildings and the old infrastructure, but it's been used in lots of different ways. And if you can read below the surface, you get a much richer understanding of the life of the street and of the neighborhoods it went through, and I think of Atlanta in general. Reading Below the Surface with Dr. Marnie Davis, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. 
Georgia State history professor Dr. Marnie Davis spoke with us about her research project, Streetscape Palimpsest, a history of Georgia Avenue. You can learn more about it at gpbnews.org. Most staff members at American museums tend to be white. A 2015 Andrew Mellon Foundation study found that's true for about 72% of such workers. A new degree program through the Atlanta University Center seeks to change that. It's for students at Spelman and Morehouse Colleges and Clark Atlanta University. Cheryl Finley is an art historian and director of the new AUC Collective for the Study of Art History and Curatorial Studies. She spoke with GPB's Ricky Bevington. What comes to mind for you when you hear that most people working in museums today come from one racial group? It makes me think that uh, that kind of representation that one, when one enters a museum is not necessarily going to be welcoming to the vastly growing and more diverse population that is present and living in this country today. People who wish to go to art museums and who do go to art museums, it's not really going to provide a welcoming context for them. What would change? I guess I would say, how do you define welcoming? And, and what would be unwelcome versus welcoming? Being able to see someone in positions of power and influence that look like you. And if I could use myself as an example, prior to going to graduate school to earn my PhD in art history and African American studies at Yale University, I was working in the art world as an art appraiser. I worked for myself and I also consulted with other appraisers. And I often found that I was the only woman of color in the auction room, in the art world, in the art museums, and working with people who were having their collections of art appraised and that was something that was really troubling to me. And what is going to be different about an art history class in this program that you're running versus any other art history class in the United States? There are a number of differences. And I, I think the one that, that I would point out is the location, the location of where we are. Not only where we are physically in the city of Atlanta, where we are in the country today, where we are today, globally speaking, and where we are in the history of art. If we look at the historic Atlanta University Center, uh, Hale Woodruff, um, the renowned uh, muralist, um, educator, and curator, together with Nancy Elizabeth, Elizabeth Prophet, also an artist in her own right, a painter and sculptor, together they established the Clark Atlanta uh, art departments. Hale Woodruff also established the Atlanta University Annuals. These were painting exhibitions that invited black artists from around the country to exhibit their work at a time when it wasn't possible at all for black artists to exhibit their works. So when we think about the time period that I'm discussing, um, it was in 1931 that Woodruff um, and Profit established the art departments of the Atlanta University Center institutions. So this is really significant. Not only does it talk about um, a long history that's situated in educating black people at HBCUs in the nation, but it also talks about a long history of art and a long history of art that relates to the moment that we're trying to address. And this is a moment of exclusion, a moment um, where we're trying to not only diversify the art world professions, the museum professions, um, but also to think about um, what this means as uh, what I would call uh, a project of, of social justice. 
this fall is the very first semester. Can you share with me just what some of the feedback you've gotten from students? What are they saying? Oh, the students are so excited. They're so excited. There are some students who are, are in our program that have transferred from other institutions because they have friends who are at Spelman or at Morehouse or at Clark Atlanta, and they know those students are already studying art history and curatorial studies. Um, we have students who have actually decided to extend their stay because they want to complete a degree in art history. We have students who are in the science sciences in chemistry who came with us uh, to a program at Emory University on conservation. Uh, so that we're really drawing interdisciplinarily from students across the campus, um, students, of course, in the Department of Art and Visual Culture, um, students in chemistry, students in the Social Justice uh, Scholars Program. And there's a really, really huge response to, uh, to what we're doing. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Ricky. GPB's Ricky Bevington there with Cheryl Finley, director of the New Atlanta University Center Collective for the Study of Art History and Curatorial Studies. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Laraven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Nyswanger is our engineer. Our interns are Alexis Thomason and Jessica Lowell. Don Smith is our Dean of Grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. Mary Lynn Ryan is executive producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time listening to On Second Thought.